Evangelism. We'll continue to look at a number of things in regard to Bible evangelism. But as we begin our lesson tonight, I want you to think about your dream home. Everything that you want in that dream home, you, you've laid it out in your mind, you know exactly what it is, how many rooms, where those rooms are going to be, and maybe even you've thought in your mind about the decoration, the decor in the house, how it's going to look, how you're going to do it. You know the outside color, you know the shingles, you know all of those things, and you actually go and, and you hire somebody to draw the plans for, for that house. And, and so you're completely ready to build that house, so what is the first thing that you have to do if you're going to build your dream home? Well, if you're looking at the screen, you understand, you know that you have got to start with a foundation. You can't build the roof and expect the house to grow underneath it. You've got to start with a foundation. You dig it out, you pour the footing, you do all of the things that are necessary in order to build a house on top of that foundation. Now tonight, as we think about building on a foundation, I want you to go with me to the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 6, verses 47 through 49, we have Luke's account of the two men who were building, the wise and the foolish, that we read about back in the book of Matthew, chapter number 7. But here's Luke's account of it. He says, Jesus says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But uh, the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. I don't want us to talk tonight about the hearing and the doing part of, of Luke chapter 6, verses 47 through 49. I want us to think about the principle that Jesus lays down in regard to building on a foundation. You've got to have a good foundation, he points out. This man built, the wise man, as we would look back into the book of Matthew, this man built on solid rock. He dug down, Jesus says, and he got to the rock and he built his house on that and his house stood. But the other man just went out and started building on the ground. And notice Jesus says he does it without a foundation. He just lays his house out on the ground without a foundation. And so the very God of heaven, as he's teaching on earth, he says foundations are necessary. He, he teaches us about that, even though that's not his topic, that's not his point of discussion. He didn't just set out to say, now if you're going to build a house, you've got to have a good foundation. But when he is teaching principles, things that he expects people to do, incidental to that, <coughs> he points out, you've got to have a foundation. And we all, all need to remember that. So as we, as we look and we think about it, we ourselves need to remember that principle not just in house building, but in other aspects of our life as well. We need to remember the principle that Jesus lays out here in regard to building on a foundation. Even if you're going to try to lead someone to Christ, you have to first lay down a good foundation. If you're going to be successful in what you do, you've got to lay down that good foundation. If not, if you don't do that, 
what you're trying to build in that person is going to collapse a lot of times even before it gets finished. So we have to understand that as those who would be uh, evangelists in the work of the Lord. And we need to remember that you can't start by installing the windows. That's not where we start. We start with the foundation. Now what do we mean by that? Look at John 16, verse number 12. This is Jesus on the night before his crucifixion. He's talking to his apostles that have gathered together in a room. They're preparing for the Passover, eating the Passover. And the Bible says there, Jesus talking to these men, I still have many things to say to you, (coughs) but you cannot bear them now. They had been with Jesus basically for three years. He had taught them in public and in private, these 12 men. And uh, as he is about to leave them, he still says, I need to tell you some more stuff, but you're not ready for it yet. He had begun to lay a foundation. It wouldn't be until after his crucifixion and his resurrection that they would fully understand everything that he wanted to teach them and they would be, go, uh, be able to go out and to preach and to teach it to others. But he says, you're not ready for it yet. I, I mean, he's only going to be there with them a few more hours before they run off after Jesus is arrested. And he still, still says, you're not ready for it yet. You know, when we are talking to our friends and our loved ones, too many Christians want to try to lead people to Christ by first installing the windows. You see, a friend or a family member or a co-worker, they'll ask you a question about the church. Maybe they ask, why doesn't the church use, uh, why, why don't you not use instrumental music? And what we immediately try to do is want to start showing them what's inside the window. And the house hasn't even been built yet. Or maybe they come to you and they'll ask you a question about, well, why do you folks observe the Lord's Supper every first day of the week? And we'll want to begin to teach them about why we do the, the uh, partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. We want to show them in that window when the foundation has not been built. Or, or maybe they say, well, well, why do you folks teach about baptism, that it's necessary for the remission of sins? And, and we want to start showing them what's inside the window, and there's not even a floor there, much less a foundation. Not with that person. You see... <coughs> Many people out in our workplaces and in our homes and and the friends that we have, they still need to know many things, but they're not ready for them just yet. The foundation must first be laid in order for them to be able to understand and comprehend everything that they need to understand. Now next Wednesday, or Sunday night rather, We're going to be passing out a copy of this little booklet to each one, Back to the Bible. It's a study. And I'll ask you again next week, write your name on it, because we're going to keep it for a while. We'll be using it for a while. But Back to the Bible and just about every other (coughs) uh, focused study that is designed to lead folks to Christ, they start basically in the same place. You see... What they teach at the very beginning, and I know you can't see this, you'll be able to see it next week, is authority. You see, authority 
the foundation principle that first must be learned is authority. Before you can teach someone about the necessity of baptism or, or, or why you partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week or why we don't use instruments of music, they've got to understand something about the authority by which we do things. And, and so that is, that is so, so necessary. How many of you have ever heard of Samuel Clemens? better known as Mark Twain. You know him for some of his books more than, more than others, uh, Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer and all of those guys. Well, he wrote a, uh, a story titled uh, Roughing It. And, and in that story, it sort of illustrates the need for authority. Now, what I want to do is just read a little bit of it, read a few sentences from it. He said, the devil seems to have again broken loose in our town. Pistols and guns explode and knives gleam in the streets as early as in early times. When there uh, has been a long season of quiet, people are slow to wet their hands in blood. But once blood is spilled, cutting and shooting come easy. Not before last, Jack Williams was assassinated. And yesterday afternoon, we had a more bloody work growing out of the killing of, William, uh, of Williams and on the same street in which he met his death, it appears that Tom Reeder, a friend of Williams, and George Gumbert were talking at the meat market of the latter about the killing of Williams the previous night. When Reeder said it was a most cowardly act to shoot a man in such a way, giving him no show. Then it goes on after some more arguing. Gumbert drew a knife and, and stabbed Reeder, cutting him in two places in the back. Reader was taken to the office of Dr. Owens where the wounds were properly dressed. Being considerably under the influence of liquor, Reader did not feel his wounds as he otherwise would, and he got up and went to the street. He went to the meat market and renewed the quarrel with Gumbert, threatening his life. After these threats, Gumbert went off and procured a double-barrel shotgun. He came back and shot Reader twice. The doctors examined him and said it's almost impossible for him to recover. At the time that this occurred, there were great many persons on the street in the vicinity, and a number of them called out to Gumbert when he saw, they saw the, him raise his gun and said, Hold on and don't shoot. After the shooting, the street was instantly crowded with inhabitants of that part of the town, some appearing much excited and laughing, declaring that it looked like the good old times of sixty. It was whispered around that it was not all over yet. Five or six more were to be killed before that night. Well, if you think about what's going on in that old west town, you'll see one thing happens and then another thing happens and then a third thing happens. And it all happens because no one is there to stop it. There's no authority there to put an end to it. And if you noticed one of the statements, some of the people out in the street laughing and saying, it appears that the good times of the 60s are back, you know it's just a free-for-all. You know that they've decided because there is no authority, everyone can pretty much do what he is capable of doing, what he's able to do, what he wants to do. And so he sort of illustrates the fact that we need authority just by, the, by that story. There's an author by the name of David Grace. And Mr. Grace points out that some people are capable of anything. And then he, then he gives a list of some of the things. 
He said, if given the chance, some people will kill their own children. You ever known of a case of that? Where a person, a mother, killed her children? Uh, you haven't listened to the news very much over the past several years, or you've heard of a number of cases where that has happened. Or where fathers have abused and killed their children. I just read a, a story or part of a story <clears throat> this past, uh, I guess it was last night that I was reading it, about a father who had been arrested because they had found his son encased in concrete. His young son encased in concrete after he had killed him. Some people will do anything. Given the chance, they'll kill their own children. Some people, he goes on and says, if given the chance, some people will eat other people. They'll eat other people. Now hopefully, <laughs> there's not many of those in the United States, but if you go to some isolated places in some third world countries, you'll probably find that happening, that they will kill and eat. If given the chance, some people will kill millions of strangers. You know, that's obvious. If they could, they're terrorists who would destroy millions of people. Uh, they've sought and killed thousands at one time. And if they had the opportunity, they would just wipe out everyone, especially in the United States. And so some people, given the opportunity, will do a lot of things. And then I read in a psychology report that said if in any group of five million people, you will have at least one serial killer. In any group of five million people, you will have dozens of rapists. In any group of five million people, you will have hundreds of armed robbers. In that same group, you'll have thousands of thieves. You'll have pedophiles, cheats, crooks, wife beaters, drunks, liars, psychopaths, and fraud. You'll have people who will do anything for money, for ego, for power, for celebrity, for attention, for sex, or just for no reason at all. You see, all of that, as we think about it, illustrates a need for authority. Who's going to stop the serial killer or the rapist? Or, or the one who would, uh, uh, would steal, or the pedophiles, or the cheats, or the crooks. You see, we have to have some form of authority in that setting. And that's why we need authority in our society. You see, authority can be used to provide order and security in people's lives. That's sort of what we're illustrating by the story from, from Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens. What we're talking about in, in regard to the psychology uh, writing and, and talking about how many people would be found in that five million group that would do harm to you. You need authority to stop that. Authority can be used also to manage conflict peacefully and fairly. Well, again, you know, uh, if you, I don't know if they still do it or not, I haven't watched it in years, but used to at the end of that show, The People's Court. Uh, Doug Llewellyn, I don't even know if he's still alive or not. Uh, he talks about basically if you have a problem, what do you do? You take them to court. That's how he would end it. You see, that's an authority that would settle it. And, and so, you know, maybe if Mr. Gumbert and, and the other guy had uh, taken it to court or at least gone to some arbitrator, if you will, who was an authority in the matter, 
these things could have been taken care of. Authority can be used to protect important rights and freedoms. You know, in days gone by, in Old Testament times, there were judges who ruled against the, the widows. Uh, they, they did that falsely, and God called them on it. God punished them for it. But when, when things are done correctly, when the authority is there and things are done right, then that authority stands and protects those who can't protect themselves. And then not only that, authority ensures that benefits and burdens will be distributed fairly. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, simply this. Have you ever heard the statement, there are two systems of justice in the United States? One for the rich and powerful, and one for the poor guy? True authority won't do that. It treats everyone equally and lets us do the things that are good and right. And, and so... So far in our study tonight, what we've seen is our society needs authority to help control and to help make sure things are carried on right. But I want you to understand tonight that authority in religion is an absolute must. Authority in religion, just like in society, authority in religion is an out, absolute must. You see, the very nature of man demands that we have some sort of authority. Man was created, as you well know, a free moral agent. What does that mean? Well, a man can determine good and evil, and, and he can choose between the two, but somebody's got to define what's good and what's evil, and it's not the man who can do that. Man has the capacity to, uh, to be that free moral agent, to choose to do one or the other, but someone else has to make the distinction between the two. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 10, at verse number 23, there the Bible says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it's not in man who walks to direct his steps. It's not in man to direct his steps. Who gives man the steps that he needs to take? We can choose which ones we take, but it's God who is uh, giving us the direction, who's giving us the path. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, at verse number 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I might think it's right. It might sound good to me. I might feel it in my heart, but just because I think it, feel it, or in some other way think it's favorable for me, does not necessarily make it the right way. It may be sending me on the wrong path. You know, how many times does God have to say something in order for it to be true? Well, I would say one, okay? That's the only time He has to tell us. But in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25, God says the same thing. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of that same thing that we find in Proverbs chapter 14 at verse 12. And so, doubly there, within just a couple of chapters in the book of Proverbs, we know that we've got to have a higher authority. Because I may not get it right just because I think of it. You see, the absence of universal conformity to a, a single concept of morality illustrates the need for God's authority. 
Now let me point out some things to you. I want you to think about these things. You may think they're strange or off the wall or, or, or gross or whatever. How many of you have uh, ever eaten beef? Big old juicy ribeye steak. I mean, that's pretty good, isn't it? Especially a tender one, you know, that's, that's cooked just right. Oh, you know, maybe may be rare, it may be, well, sacrificed, uh, you know, to the Lord or whatever. But however you like it, how many of you have ever eaten steak? Is that immoral in the United States? No, they have steak houses, don't they? And sometimes you'll travel and you'll get a steak. But you know what? If you were to go to India, it would be considered immoral to eat beef because you might be eating an ancestor who has come back as a cow. And so they look down upon that. Who's right? I vote for us, okay? I've had steak before. But who gets to decide? What about uh, a woman with an uncovered face? Now, I will agree that in the United States of America, there are some women who need to cover up a lot more May not be necessarily their face, but they almost just forgot to put anything on. And you can go to Walmart or anywhere else and see these kinds of things. But you know what? In, in some places, when we, when we talk about women, we know that they have to, they can't go out in public with an uncovered face because that's considered immoral. Iran, Saudi Arabia, Sudan and some other places. Who's right? Not only that, but what about killing a female who has been raped? Now, if we were to catch someone who has been raped, we would have compassion on that person, wouldn't we? Or at least I hope we would. And when I read in the Bible, the Bible has compassion on that one and we would inflict punishment upon the one, and really and truly our nation should do a better job at inflicting the punishment on a rapist, but we would inflict punishment upon the one who, who, who did the offense. But in certain places in our world, such as Somalia and Sudan, a woman who is raped is also put to death because... She has been raped. And they consider that moral. Who's right? Well, what about cannibalism? You know, I mentioned, mentioned a moment ago, given the opportunity some people would eat other people. What about cannibalism? Right or wrong? Well, we consider it immoral. Some, some countries, some tribes, in certain places, consider it a delicacy. And so, indeed, there's no standard universal moral code that people follow. You know what that says? It says we need a higher authority. It, we need someone to show us the way. The absence of universal conformity to that single concept uh, of morality shows that there's problems without authority. But the same is true in regard to the religious practices of our world. There's no universal conformity to a single concept of religious practices, and that indicates a need for authority. For example, 
Do we worship pagan deities or do we worship the one true God? Depending upon where you are in our world, some still hold on to the pagan deities, as in times gone by. So which is, which is it? Do we, do we allow those who, who have always worshipped pagan deities to continue in that and add worshipping the one true God? Would we do that? No, that doesn't sound right either, does it? We've got to have some authority. What about Christ versus Buddha or Muhammad or the Dalai Lama? You know, who's going to make the choice, the decision? Who's going to say whether or not one of these is right or wrong? Who's going to say that? We've got to have some authority. What about Christian worship? You know, when we think about Christian worship, there are different forms of worship that so many... And we'll put this, and if you'll notice on the screen, I have it in quotation marks. What about who decides what happens? Do we have the all-out band? Or do we have a cappella singing? Do we have a, a woman preaching? Or do we have a man preaching? You know, what do we do? Do we have solos or do we have uh, congregational singing? Who decides in Christian worship? What I like, what I feel, what I want, who decides? You see, just like the others, there has to be an authority. What about Christian terms, and again, put that in quotation marks, Christian terms of salvation? Some would say baptism is necessary, and that's what we would hold on to here. Some say it's nothing more than just a just to show a, a thing that one does because he's already been saved. And if he never got to the water, he'd still be okay. Who decides? Who makes the call? Who says this is right and that's wrong? Certainly not me. Not my preferences. There's got to be an authority. And remember that authority comes from the outside, from outside a man. Because it's not in man to direct his own steps. And, and, and I may think it's right, but I'm going the wrong direction. And so that authority comes from there. You see, the history of man, when he's left to his own vanity, to his own reason, it, it leads him to desperation and a, a desperate need for divine authority. All you need to do is go to the book of Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. And in that passage, the Apostle Paul writes about the Gentiles of his day. He said, For although they know, knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, Exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. <coughs> Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who, blessed, who is blessed forever. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see, Paul points out four things. That because of the lack of their recognition of authority, they're turning away from God, four things happen. Number one, they became fools. Verse number 22 of that reading that we just did. Not only that, they became impure. Verse 24 They were given over to dishonorable passions, verse 26. And then in verse 28, they became debased in mind. Now, what does all that mean? It means it looks a whole lot like our society today. With all of the ungodliness, worldliness, fleshly desire, covetousness, greed, All of those kinds of things that are in lists that we find in the Word of God. Now, why did did all of this happen? They forgot God. They forgot the authority. They forgot where it came from, and they started making their own authority. You see, the wisdom of man is foolishness in comparison with the wisdom of God. Paul would point that out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. as well. And so, basically we're not smart enough to know exactly what to do, what's right, how to do it, even in the religious realm without the authority that comes down from God. You see, the world apart from God lives in futility with their understanding darkened, as Paul would write it, because of their own ignorance Again, as Paul wrote it there in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Most of the serious consequences which exist when there's a lack of authority in our society would also and do also likewise occur when there's no authority in the religious realm. Without authority, religion would be completely meaningless. You know why? Because everybody's doing his own thing. He's out there doing it just like he wants it. And so really, who are you worshiping? If you're doing it just like you want it, rather than the one who's in authority. And we we hear that, and hopefully we've understood that in our own life. But let's take it one step farther as we begin to bring it to, to a close tonight. You see, respect for authority is the exact equivalent of respect for God. You understand what I'm saying? Respect for authority is the exact equivalent for respect for God. God is the authority in religious matters. And if we disobey or disregard God's authority, who have we disobeyed and disregarded? God. 
if we obey and we're very conscious to try to do things the way that God lays them out, who have we respected when we've respected that authority? God. And so respect for authority is the exact equivalent of respect for God. And so when we find things that are laid out, and we haven't made the case with the Bible being the the sole authority for mankind tonight, that's not the point of this lesson. We'll do that in another lesson. But when when we disrespect the authority of the Word of God, we have disrespected God because this is the Word of God. And so we begin to build a foundation regarding authority. Well, let's answer one question tonight before we end it. What is authority? You see, we've talked about authority this entire lesson, but we haven't defined it. We've talked about what it is to not have it, but what do we mean by authority? Four things. Number one, authority is the power to require and receive submission. To require and receive submission. Who's the only one that you know in the religious realm who has the authority to require and receive submission? God is. Authority is the right to expect obedience. Does God have the right to expect you and me to obey Him? Hopefully you'll say yes. My next question is, why? If you've been with us on Sunday morning, He is our Creator. He is the one who has done all of these marvelous things for us. Without Him, we wouldn't have even life itself. We wouldn't even be able to breathe if He just turned His back on His creation for one moment. So He has the right to expect authority. Authority is superiority derived from status that carries with it the right to command and give final decisions. If, uh, if you were in the military and, and a superior officer, notice the word that I used, a superior officer gave you an order. What did you do? What, what could you do? What were you expected to do? Uh, you just disobeyed it, disregarded it, and went on about your business, didn't you? Well, maybe until that superior officer caught up with you and, and the rest of the system came down on your head and you found yourself in the brig somewhere because you disobeyed an order. Well, why, did, why, do, we, why do we call them superior officers? They've earned a rank. Their rank is above your rank. Uh, who is the greatest... Of all superiors. Let me, let me put it in context. Who's the superiorist? That's country terms. Who's the superiorist of all superiors? Y'all remember that now, won't you? It's God. And then finally, authority is that to which we may refer for the final answer. We're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures in the coming weeks in regard to authority. And we'll establish Bible and God's authority and all those kinds of things as we go through this little booklet. But I want you to pay close attention to that last part right there. 
Authority is that to which we refer for which answer? The final answer. If it's the final answer, any other answer that may have been given before that, right, is invalid. Because authority gives us the last, the final, the only, the answer that counts, right? It's the final answer. A few years ago, there was a, a television game show. Who wants to be a millionaire? Had four choices on the screen that the contestants could make. And they'd run through them in their mind or call a buddy or whatever. And finally, they'd come up with an answer and the host would say, What? Is that your final answer? If they said, yes, this is the final answer, then what, what did they do? They revealed the right answer. And that person couldn't go back and say, no, it, it, that wasn't my final answer. I really wanted to, I, I was going to choose that one that was right. But in the realm of religion, whatever God says ends it. And my feelings, my desire, my, my whatever that I've got on the inside of me that I'm not even capable of directing my own steps with really makes no difference. Because I have an authority and that authority says this is right and this is wrong and I want you to do what's right rather than what's wrong. God gives us the final authority, the final answer. Again, as we, as we look through these booklets, I said we'll hand them out next week. We've, we've spent two months and one week and the third month in dealing with things in regard to evangelism. We'll be looking through these things and we'll be discussing them in, in a little greater detail than, they, than we find them in the book so that we'll understand about the passages and how to, how to handle that passage when we talk to someone and, and, and to refresh our own memories in regard to everything in re, uh, as far as teaching someone the gospel. It may be tonight that you want to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you want to put your Lord on in baptism. If that's the case, then we're here for you. Or it may be that you need to come back to the Lord if you need to do that so that we might pray with you and for you. We'd invite you to come right now as we stand and sing.